Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fucksters, what the fuckaroos, what the fuckaroo bonsais, maybe, even. How are you? Hi, Mark Marin here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining. Uh, I'm happy to be here. I'm punchy. I'm tired. I shot all day. Marin season four in progress. It's happening. First two episodes were tremendous. Did I already tell you about that? No, I couldn't have. We just wrapped it on uh, on Monday night. Lynn Shelton, who you've heard on this show and seen her her many movies, directed the first two. Spectacular, went great. I think I was in the middle of it, uh, middle of it the last time I talked to you. The stories are good now. Uh, this block uh, we're shooting with the uh, incomparable uh, Bobcat Goldthwait back on set with his hats and his interesting clothing choices and his auteur vision, and uh, we're doing the thing. We're doing the show. Uh, I'm bearded and uh, frazzled, and uh, it's going well. I, I think you'll like them. It's, it's fun for me. I, I think I mentioned this before. The fact that we're in a new area, a, a reality not like the one that I live necessarily, uh, has freed me up a bit. I'm having a bit more fun. Hope that's okay. My guest today is the uh, Honorable Peter Garalnik. Uh, Peter Garalnik uh, I don't know if you know who he is, but he's one of the great music writers. He's written amazing books about music. The one that first blew me away was uh, Searching for Robert Johnson. He went on to uh, write Last Train to Memphis, The Rise of Elvis Presley, Careless Love, The Unmaking of Elvis Presley. Uh, he did uh, Dream Boogie, The Triumph of Sam Cooke, which I read a little bit of. I've read a little bit of all these books, but his newest book is... Uh, Sam Phillips, the man who invented rock and roll. And I got to talk to him. Now, I am certainly no music nerd. I know what I know, but I don't know it in detail. And I don't run too deep with some things. A few specific things, maybe I know some stuff about. It's not a nerd out on one specific artist or many specific artists. But this guy's a historian. And the people he chooses to talk about are are pretty fascinating people. This is a massive book on... uh, on Sam Phillips and Sam Phillips Sun Record Studios. I mean, they were all there, man. This is where it all happened. This is where it all coalesced. Uh, black music, country music, uh, mountain music, uh, some gospel music, and it all sort of came together. And that's where Johnny Cash and Elvis Presley and Jerry Lou Lewis and Howlin' Wolf. 
A lot of them all came out of there. And some country artists that I didn't even know about, Charlie Rich, John Prine did a, uh, a Sun single back in the day. Carl Perkins, of course. Out of the vortex of all those different forms of music and personalities comes rock and roll. Perhaps maybe, depending on what you think the first rock and roll song is, I believe I discussed that with Peter Karolnik. I did go to Sun Records. I stood out in front of it. Unfortunately, the, uh, the time that I went there when I was younger... I don't think I was as into it as I should have been. I did go, I went to Nashville. I went to Memphis. Um, I did go to Graceland. I did go out there. Did not know Elvis, met his uncle. I met his uncle Vernon. And uh, I bought a Graceland comb that was taken from me by a woman who drove a large Cadillac with uh, leopard skin pattern seat covers. Where does that go? How does that work out? Well, I went out to Graceland and I saw the, the house and uh, I was, I was uh, surprised at how relatively humble it was and not too ostentatious. Perhaps it was for the time. There's a room with three TVs and that was sort of like a, ooh, a room with three TVs. This guy was out of control. I do remember the uh, trophy hut out back. That was really the most impressive. There's an entire sort of hanger just for gold records and stuff so that was interesting and uh who was that comic who used to do that great joke god there was what was that guy's name did that great joke if elvis was so great why is he buried in his backyard like a gerbil or hamster or something oh if anyone knows who did that joke please tell me that was a good joke well, i don't think it's rob schneider but i don't think it was so across the street, my memory from Graceland was this strip mall where you buy all kinds of things, Elvis. And Vernon Presley sat there in front of one of those stores saying he was Elvis's uncle and he'd written this book. Just sitting out there in front of a store on his own selling this book about Elvis, Vernon Presley. So I bought a book and I bought a, I bought a, I bought a comb and I bought some other knickknacks, Elvis knickknacks. That night back in Memphis, well, what had happened was... This is a rock and roll story. It's got nothing to do with rock and roll. It's got nothing to do with Elvis. Maybe it does. But that night, I had met some dudes on the roof. They'd sold me a little blow. So I had a little blow. I had some Elvis paraphernalia. I had Uncle Vernon's book. I had nothing to do, and I was all alone, and I was drinking. So I did a little blow, and I went to a club. I asked someone, maybe the concierge at the Peabody, where could I go to, to do some clubbing? Because I was on a little blow and ready to go in Memphis, Tennessee. So I went to this place that he recommended. And in my memory, I walk into this large kind of one-room club. And there was nobody in it but one crazy-looking woman dancing in the middle all by herself. Just dancing, looking crazy. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It just It all looked a little crazy. It looked like I just walked into a David Lynch situation. And... I didn't know what else to do. I was drinking. I was doing some blow. This was the club I was at. So I went out and, you know, started kind of, you know, not dancing with the lady. I waited until she got off the dance floor. And I said, what's up? She goes, not much. I go, you want to do some blow? She goes, yeah. So we do some blow. I go, you want to hang out or something, whatever the equivalent of that was then? She goes, okay. And we go out. I said, I can stay at this hotel. I don't have a car. She goes, I have a car. We drove, We jumped into the large Cadillac Eldorado with leopard skin seats. It looked like a pretty well-worn-in car. And we drove back to the Peabody. 
we went up to my room and we did some blow and nothing happened. But she did, uh, for some reason, she goes, can I have this Elvis comb? And I go, yeah, I guess. And she took my Elvis comb and some of my change and maybe some matches. I think I gave her a lighter and the rest of my cigarettes. And then she left. So that was not very rock and roll. I guess that's the point of that story. But nonetheless, in terms of Elvis Presley, it's weird. I knew some of his great songs when I was younger, but it took me seeing Rick Danko open for Jerry Garcia at the Orpheum in Boston, do Mystery Train, alone on an acoustic guitar in the most beautiful, intense, almost tripped out fashion. Granted, I was on a little mushrooms, but that was my portal in to everything Elvis, somehow or another, was seeing the late Rick Danko just lose himself in Mystery Train. Anyway, that was quite a ramble. I hope it tightened up and made some sense or was at least compelling as we enter this conversation with uh, rock journalist Peter Garrow. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of like literature and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's focus on rock and roll, man. All right, what's that? Yeah, you know what it is. <laughs> You've been chasing it your whole life. Wait, no, wait. Now, so you're like a you're like a real writer guy, Peter Garalnik. I've been seeing your name forever, and I I own several of your books. That this one, the new one, I got for free. But I I read most of Dream Boogie. I've had I like going home. Feel like going home forever. Searching for Robert Johnson was a nice poetic meditation yeah. on uh, on the nature and truth of Robert Johnson. Uh, the double Elvis slammer. Two major books that ate up how much of your life? A decade at least? Yeah, only 11 years. Uh, <laughs> Last Train to Memphis and Careless Love, the the uh, quintessential seminal Elvis tomes. Well, you know, whatever. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> what do you tell you? know. But the, the thing, so, but did you set out originally? I, I mean, I think you're, you know, I, I think we went to the same college. I don't do a lot of research. Where did you go to school? I graduated from Boston University. Yeah, no, I graduated from Boston University, and I even taught at Boston University in the classics department when I was 23, 24, 25. Classics. Classics. You know, I'm a classic kind of guy. But Okay, so <laughs> let's, but let's, let's talk about that for a minute. So what does that mean, classics? Uh, Latin and Greek. So you can read Latin and Greek? Uh, you know, I taught Greek, but I really, I was faking it. I majored in Greek. I never was that good at it. Latin, I was qu- quite good at, and, and I uh, uh, could read pretty well. But I, I taught a course in... Uh, the ancient novel where 
one year it would be in reading Latin of Apuleius or Petronius. Yeah. Another year it would be in English. But we read stuff like Last Exit to I introduced Last Exit to Brooklyn. Selby. V, v, Tristram Shandy, a whole range of things which I saw as being parallel in various ways to the to these ancient works. To the tragedies and to the uh, the narratives. The, yeah, the, to, the, to the narratives, yeah, to the, this kind of... Uh, the great hermeneutic code where everybody ends kind of shitty or ends kind of good. <laughs> Right? <laughs> or ends. <laughs> Everybody ends. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so uh, when, so you, when you were a kid, you were you, you know, kind of, a, what, a language nerd? A, a... No, no, not at all. It was just it was an easy thing to major in because I went to, in high school, I got so much Latin that I could declare a major and take no courses. Right. Uh, and then I could take whatever I wanted. But no, I just, all I ever wanted to be uh, was a writer and a baseball player from the time I was six or seven years old. But a writer, because you did a couple of books out of the gate there that weren't necessarily a along the uh, the journey that you took, uh, right? No, I've, I've written ten novels. I mean, I wrote my first one when I was here. Nine, comes nine, here comes the truth. And, here comes uh, the no, I, I had I didn't set out to write. The only reason. And I published two collections. Don't break my heart, Peter. You're the guy. Don't tell me that the music writing was just something you had to do for money. There was no money. I mean, I would never have done it you know, if money were the if money were the object. This is not what I would have done. But I, I uh, no, I, I, I published two collections of short stories right. when I was twenty and twenty one. But I, uh, no, I, I wrote about music. I wanted to be a writer, and but I fell into the blues when I was fifteen or sixteen. How did that happen? Well, because uh, that's when I got it too. I mean, you're older than me, right? How old are you? Me, I'm about 15. Kind of, come just, on, at 15 I'm, at heart? At 15 at heart. I mean, yeah. you, the, the, the person on the exterior that you see is not the real me. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm 72, 71. I'm, All right, so I'm 52, but so you, I guess then you were getting the blues, at, actually at, as it was first, first sort of popularly introduced to rock fans. Well, before that, really. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I mean, it was just a, the brother of a friend of mine went to the Newport Folk Festival. He, oh, comes, yeah. back, he comes back yeah. with about, you know, with, with a couple of dozen albums, and they could have been... That they were selling at the Folk Festival? Yeah, and, and they, could, they could have been, you know, I, I, I just can't think of who would, uh, um, you know, who would be, have been, you know, it would be Peter, Paul, and Mary, except that was before Peter, Paul, and Mary, but just all kinds of folk, Joan Bias sure. was before. A couple of blues guys. Uh, and he came back with a couple of blues Like records. what, Skip James? No, no, he wasn't. Muddy really. Waters? Well, I, I, no, I'd say more like Big Bill Brunzi. And, oh, okay. Uh, Brownie McGee and Sonny Terry. Anyway, this friend of mine and I just settled on, and we heard these blues things, yeah. and we just went crazy. And we got, this was like 1959, 1960, and we just, it became a lifelong search. And it just turned me around. It turned my life around it, and it led me to every other kind of music that I listened to. Every sure. time. But what do you think it is, though? You're, you're a Jewish guy? I'm a, I'm a Jewish guy. Yeah, yeah, me too. So, and I'm not saying anything. I do talk about that sometimes. But, you know, there's been a few uh, fairly inspired Jewish blues players and a lot of Jewish kids like myself who were mildly enlightened when we were younger and gravitated towards blues. Did you ever think about that connection at all? There's no... no. No, Never, because I had no Jewish background. I'm yeah, Jewish. Well, I'm Jewish ethnically. I know I'll be on the list when Donald Trump draws it up. But you know, other than that, that's my identity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I feel kind of the same way. I had a little bit of Jewish background. I mean, I did. You know, I I, I did seek sort of identification through Jewishness at some point. I'm not a religious man, mm -hmm. but culturally, I'm Jewish. Yeah. No, I didn't have any of that. But but I know Ralph Bass, for instance, who mm -hmm. was at Chess Records. You know, he made this big connection between Jews and the blues and what he heard from the cantors growing up in the temples. It was exactly the same as the blues. Huh. And, I, and I take that, you know, for uh, his truth, and I, I, I don't dispute that, but it, that was not the case with me. No, but, it, was, it was something like, and I had never heard anything like this before, and mm. it presented 
a raw slice of, I mean, it was like Last Exit to Brooklyn, in a sense. Mm. Oh, yeah, I could see that It was just a yeah. whole, introduced a whole element and a sound and a, uh, an unadorned honesty that just knocked me out. And Musically why, and vocally. Musically and vocally both. And I just sat in my room. My mother had gotten this uh, phonograph record with green stamps from Stop yeah. and Shop. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's one of these little portable things. Sure. That everything's built with in. With the lid that you close it yeah, and open yeah. it. Yeah. And I would sit there in my room, uh, first at home, then when I went off to college, just listening to these records and studying them and trying to decipher them. Uh, I'd go to Roxbury and... Uh, you know, go to these bars and stuff. I couldn't order a drink. I'd, I, I mean, I'd get bloated on ginger ale. So the know. circuit, the, the black neighborhood in Roxbury, Mattapan uh, was was pretty uh, black at that time too, right? Yeah, and I mean, it, the jazz, the jazz clubs were were along uh, Mass but, Ave. But, you headed down to Columbus, and uh, and there would be battles of the blues and stuff. But and the, this is no in the early '60s. Yeah, but the big but the big revelation in my life when mm-hmm. it came to that, and, I'll, and I want to answer the question about why I started writing about music, but was when uh, the Soul Show started to come to town. And that was around 64 when WILD, which was the first black station yeah. in Boston, opened up. And Early Bird was there. And um, He was a DJ? He was a DJ. He, he ruled Boston. And I, I, he moved to Renton, Washington some time ago. And I've stayed in touch I know with where him Renton all my is. life. Yeah, well, so my fa- second wife came from. Her fa- parents were right outside of Renton. Well, I, for some reason, Early Bird thought the future was in Renton, which didn't turn out to be the case. That did him. not turn out to no. be the case unless he <laughs> wanted a job at Boeing at the time. No, I think he had an, he had e- EMP in mind for some reason, uh-huh. and that didn't. He sort of fronted a couple of shows, but that was about it. But but so so I, these shows, these soul shows. Who who were those touring acts? Well, what did you go the, see? The first show I saw was the Summer Shower of Stars in uh, 1964. Yeah, and it was uh, Solomon Burke, Joe Tex, Otis. Redding, oh. uh, Sugar Pie DeSanto, The Tams, um, oh man, uh, uh, one of those Philadelphia, great, Garrett Mims, Garnet, mm-hmm. Garnet Mims. It was incredible. I ran into a girl that I had known uh, before I'd grown up with. Yeah. She was going out with a low-level mafia guy who had something to do with the, with the uh, you know, putting on the shows. Uh-huh. She says to me, how would you like to usher the show? Uh-huh. And I said, I mean, I jumped at it. I scared, scared. But the these hell. are these are all black audiences. I'm assuming they were all black audiences. Yeah, and you were just this little wiry kid who was sitting there, taking it in. Yeah, I was sitting there like this. Yeah. you know, you, the yeah, audience yeah. can picture how uh-huh. I, get, I can I picture. Am. I'm, yeah. I'm going to just project an entire <laughs> life onto you by who by who you are right well, now. Well, then I started ushering the shows, mm-hmm. and you know, and so it's free ticket. Free ticket. Uh, I might have gotten ten or fifteen dollars. I'm not sure. I was the worst usher in history. I mean, because the head usher would say, "Ushers, ushers, to the balcony. They're breaking yeah. in off the fire escape," and yeah. everybody would be heading to the balcony, and I'd be heading to the bathroom or something. You know, <laughs> not going to get involved or, or showing yeah. people. You know, showing this nice-looking couple, this nice couple to their seats, and having these two hired guys with their arms crossed, saying, "What are you going to do about it?" Yeah. Oh, I'm going to go uh, get the head usher. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm going to go find <laughs> but, somebody to help. But, but I'd get backstage, and I'd see Jackie Wilson backstage. Yeah. I mean, not, there was no connection other than observing. And I would, uh, you know, Little Richard would, would be uh, uh, playing piano before so you, the show. You, right, you felt the, the the heat and the excitement of show business, and uh, you know these guys who were able to put out that type of sound and that type of well, music. Well, and, and it taught me that the blues was a living thing. I mean, I knew the blues was a living thing, but it didn't exist in my life. I, I'd see Lightning Hopkins was the first. Blues so you see the sound moving through the generations of music. Well, yeah. I mean, I just didn't. I, I didn't make, make a distinction. I went to see. Um, oh, okay. Ma- so the, it, was, went, it was just it, it, black music in a yeah. way. 
yeah, yeah. yeah. And eventually, Waylon Jennings. I mean, it led me to Waylon. But for instance, I saw I saw the Staple Singers. <laughs> all ends with Waylon. <laughs> I saw the Staple Singers uh, going up against the mighty, mighty clouds of joy. Uh-huh. And I thought, man, the mighty clouds of joy are just going to destroy them. And I saw Mavis just command this again with an all-black audience, mm-hmm. just to, just pulverize the audience with the power of her voice. And and uh, so it was that it was that kind of thing. So it, it, this stuff just moved you to the point where you, you couldn't make sense of it with your brain. And that was exciting. I, yeah, I wasn't looking for brain. Not really yet. Was, no, never. I was. I mean, I was. I was writing my novels. I was. I was doing that. What? What? Seeing the souls. Going to the soul shows. Seeing the soul shows. Yeah. It was just. I saw it. As, then I started seeing muddy waters because they just. They were not anywhere near where I was. And right. around the same time, I'd go to see. I, mean, I drove all night, all night to New York to see yeah. Muddy Waters at Hunter College. Drove drove back to go to work in the morning. Like what? Sixty five. Uh, it might have been 64, 65. Yeah, he was coming back from the American Folk Blues Festival in Europe. And, and with a full band. With a full band and, and before his automobile accident and when he does... Was it, who was it, Little Walter? Who was uh, on no, heart? No, it was James Cotton. Okay. And, uh, and Otis Spann and mm-hmm. uh, probably uh, S.P. Leary on drums. I, I can't remember exactly, but... Uh, and it was incredible. And he hadn't had his automobile automobile accident. So when he does got my mojo working... He does his jitterbug thing on stage, mm-hmm. and I think, "Wow, that's Muddy Waters doing," you know. Yeah. But I mean, the whole the point was it Showman. had to, it had to come to life for me, and that, and you know, in that same time period, within a couple of years, yeah. all these blues uh, singers like Skip James and Sunhouse and Mississippi John Hurt came really, out of the they, yeah, out they of the were, wild they, wherever they were, they were. Yeah, yeah. No, they were rediscovered in various places. And, Skip um, James, man, I you know that sound is is so haunting and so amazing. I you know, like I read the it wasn't your book. I don't know why you didn't write it, but. Uh, uh, the de- what is it? The Devil and Skip James was that was that the name by of the Stephen called yeah, and uh, it, it it was sort of fascinating to me that so many of these artists sort of just lay dormant for years in a way, right, and, and then right. kind of like well they, because of a of a new interest they were kind of found. Well, they weren't waiting to be found. They weren't you know right. it's like I forget what Mississippi John Hurt was doing down in Avalon, but it was like herding sheep or something. Right. That isn't right away. It was a bit of similar to that. Right. And they weren't expecting it at all. But uh uh-uh. but but so actually the first story I ever wrote, I mean I did not set out to write about music, but yeah. I was so compelled by the power of Skip James's music that I think around sixty five and so I was twenty one then. Yeah. I sought him out. I, I represented myself as, as uh, being from the magazine Blues Unlimited, and I called up Dick Waterman, who's become a great friend uh, since then, and I said, I'm doing a story for Blues Unlimited. He says, that's funny. They just ran a seven-part <laughs> series on Skip James. <laughs> Whoops. But I pursued, I continued. I, I, I said, Blues World. I'm doing it for Blues <laughs> World. <laughs> but Blues, it's a magazine. Yeah. But I mean, I had to drag myself out of the car. I remember parking the car in Because you were nervous? Yeah. I was just so scared, and I had yeah. a tape recorder with me. My father said, real reporters don't use tape recorders, because he had been the editor of his uh, college newspaper. Right. I said, man, real reporters didn't have tape recorders. They hadn't been invented <laughs> You, yeah, but yeah. I but I wound up leaving the tape recorder in the car because I just I, it was one more self conscious burden to carry in. Mm-hmm. And Skip was so gracious to me, and I'm asking these stupid questions. And I wasn't writing for publication. I w- I went to interview him because in my mind, great uh, greatness such as this will not pass my way again. I felt compelled. I had, a year earlier, or two years earlier, yeah. I had sought out the English author Henry Green. Mm-hmm. I was in England. And he wrote Caught, Back, Blindness, Living, Loving, Doting, yeah. Concluding. Great, great writer. Yeah. Um, 
And I wrote to him, and he said, well, come visit me in uh, some fancy neighborhood in London. Yeah. And I did, and I spent about four hours with him as he drank the afternoon away. Yeah. And it was just so thrilling, and I did, and I wrote up everything. And eventually, years later, I wrote a, you know, a, a story, uh, an interview, kind of. But, but really, I had no business at all except for the same reason as Skip James. Greatness such as this will, will not. Well, what, what did, but but what, were you, what did you want to know from him? What did you think you were going to get? It wasn't that. I just wanted to be, be around and, him, and be in his presence. I wanted to hear what he had to say. I wanted to, you know, mm-hmm. in some way get a glimpse, get an insight into, you know, what it was that 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 uh, you know created and, or represented this genius. And what'd you get? What'd you find? What'd you walk away with? What yeah. were the answers to that question? Well, I, the the answer to the, that question was there are no answers, which I knew <laughs> going in. But no, for me, it was just it was enthralling, and and I would say there hasn't been a single. I've never written about anybody or anything that I didn't love. Yeah. I mean, it might be, uh, let's say, Merle Haggard to me is the pinnacle of American vernacular music. One of the many pinnacles, but uh-huh. is a pinnacle. And still at it. And still at it. Now, now I like Merle, but this is not somebody who is likely to be my best friend. Sure. And uh, he's a difficult guy. That doesn't diminish him at all in my eye. I'm interested in him as a creative You'd probably person. probably hang out for a couple hours until you annoyed him. Well, you know, it's hard to say. I've hung out for him for just a few minutes and annoyed him, and I've hung out for a long time and, you know, hung, hung in there. But, you know, you, 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 the point is that I knew from the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, you, you could, again, you can imagine my body language. Mm-hmm. I'm a person, now I can talk, and there's a number of reasons I could. Then I, I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, oh, this little, you know, <laughs> but, you know, I forced myself. I just, you know, forced myself to, and with Merle, for, what I wasn't interested in, yeah, I wasn't interested in the external. I wasn't interested in the persona that's being put out. I was interested in what was behind that. And in talking to Merle, for instance, on the uh, uh, on the enhanced ebook of uh, Lost Highway, where yeah. we got a chapter on Merle, I included something like twenty-one or twenty-four minutes of Merle talking about creativity, about songwriting. That was what interested me. That was what I got from Skip James, who talked about when his father got superannuated, he retired from the ministry. Yeah. I mean, I just dug that. That, but he what does superannuated mean? Too old. Oh, okay. You know, I think at this point I may be superannuated. No, no, you're, you're 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 jamming. So like, well, it's interesting how much of that music came from the church at some point. I mean, in how it connected it was to the church. Well, it came from the church and the cotton fields. You know, yeah. it was just and and the two mixed and and it's one of the, I mean, the fire next time really speaks more than anything about the genius not of in, individual people but of African American culture and the way in which every moment is prized and every moment has to be prized and by being thrown back on their own resources African Americans created a culture different and some might say superior to uh-huh. the majoritarian culture in which they lived. I mean that was a very I don't know if it was an influential book but I, but it's it really it was an exhortatory book that I mean to me it was an exhortatory book that I, I still assign that uh, to uh, students in the MFA Which book? Uh, the Fire Next Time. No more water, the fire next time. True words when air spoke. <laughs> We're seeing the fire right now. But I, yeah, but I think like now, that's right. But I think now, like, you, you know, with this new book, The Man Who Invented Rock and Roll, Sam Phillips, uh, about Sun Records, is like this was a guy that intuitively, uh, you, you know, had his, had his you know, sort of fingers on the pulse of that and, 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 and was the first guy to really, uh, I think, integrate it in mainstream music, no? No, totally. But, I mean, you've got to understand, he had a vision of what the music was and would be and the force it would have and the changes it would, uh, you know, uh, bring about. He had a, he From had the beginning. Long before he opened the studio. He saw music, you know, some people say Amor, Winkett, uh, Omnia, you know, Love Conquers All. Well, he said music conquers all and, in fact, he would send music over to, you know, 
stop wars. He believed that. I mean, he he, he believed metaphorically that music had that power. But there was, it is magic. It is. It's absolutely magic. But his vision. Yeah. I mean, this is the reason uh, the title, uh, the man who the subtitle, the man who invented rock and roll, should be read the way Sam would say it would be. The man who quote unquote invented rock and roll. Why didn't you put that on there? I should have, and I but I've or got, italicize I, it. Well, I've, I've got I've got Sam arguing against the title and for the title in the first in the in the prologue, but the point is that he the reason that I felt that it was apropos in, in a sense was that he envisioned a music. He envisioned bringing African American music mm-hmm. t- into the popular marketplace, and he envi- envisioned it conquering, bringing down the walls of segregation. As I say, before he started recording it. That was his vision. And this is a guy that grew up in the South. He grew up in the South. And he knew, like, you know, he was, a, a, I would imagine, relatively rare in his in his views of how society should be. Relatively rare in his family, who did not like hearing an eight- and nine-year-old kid talking about the racial disparities and inequities that existed. <laughs> I mean, he was working out in the field. His father rented a farm, mm-hmm. 323-acre farm, which was really his vision of Eden. Mm-hmm. Lost the farm when the Depression came and became a uh, signal man on the bridge. Uh, but never lost oh. his love of nature. But, but uh, you know, Sam, uh, his relatives from Sam's generation spoke. I mean, Sam would say to me, now listen, I'm talking, I'm talking about an eight and nine-year-old kid. And what came to convince me that he was sp- speaking, espousing those views, uh, was talking to relatives who's, who were not at all, who were not altogether approving. I'm not saying they were prejudiced, but they were not altogether approving of the views that Sam espoused when he was a small child. Yeah, and rebel he, well, kid. they were later on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Rebel kid, uh, meek and mild, from yeah. a family meek and mild, yes. to quote Merle Haggard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so like, they were probably saying, like, where's this kid getting these ideas? And it was he, intuitive he, for him. He got his ideas from his head. He was right. not interested. Right. From, the, from the time he was born to the time he died, he was not interested in social acceptance. He said many times, he said, you know, you you may not believe this, but I had no personality as a kid. He said I had the personality of a green persimmon, you know. And his brother Judd, he said, was the one with the personality. He was yeah. really uh, charismatic. He could draw anyone to him. He never met a stranger. Sam wasn't interested in that. He was he was he was elected president of the junior class, which was his last year in high school because his father died. He you know he. He, but he, he he was elected president. He was uh, a captain of the band, but he saw it as as the outgrowth of his determination, not of his charm, not of his uh, and and he wasn't he was not interested in social acceptance. And it was it's interesting because it, you know you see as he gets older that he sort of you know takes on this um, almost this uh, this personality of of a, a prophetic person of a, a yeah. person that uh, deserves respect as an elder almost uh, you know a mythological character sam phillips is in well, a way well he he i met him in 79 yeah. he, he had done he was doing no interviews he had done virtually he th- thought that i was the first person who had interviewed him outside of uh, memphis reporters and um and the trades. Uh-huh. Uh, there were two or three others which he had conveniently. And put did aside. he ever like he maintained uh, the sort of uh, the, the rights? Like he managed himself well. He was not. A, did he lose everything and, and screw everything up at some point? No. Well, it, I mean, he had a terrible struggle starting out. Right. No. As, but I mean, ultimately, no. Ultimately, he, he record from his perspective, there was no more record. There was no more opportunity for the independent uh, record label uh, or or distributor. Uh, and that's why he really left the music business in '60. But he he uh, he held on, uh, and by the end of the decade, all the independent labels, virtually all of them, were gone. But he held on to the he to song publishing, and he and he continued in radio, which was his first love. And he saw those as the two viable ways to make a living as an 
as an independent uh, business music man. publishing and radio. Yes. Well, yeah, it was kind of that was right at the time. Music yeah. publishing still. Yeah, really. no, he's and and the family still owns the publishing. Uh-huh. And no, he was a very canny person in that way. It wasn't his first priority, but he, but his first priority was to uh, to not to. Uh, you know, put food on the table for his family, which included his deaf aunt, uh, aunt Emma, deaf mute aunt Emma in Florence, his widowed mother until she died in fifty two or fifty one, uh, and his uh, wife and two kids. And uh, he was determined not, whatever happened, he he was not going to leave them. Hungry. But he started on radio. Started on radio. Uh, saw it as a understood the power. Uh, yeah, saw it as a vehicle for communication. And in fact, when uh, WSM yeah. changed their transmitter in sixty one. Sam bought the transmitter, and to this day, the family is paying rental on it. They've, they've, because he believed it was such an historic thing, it had reached so many people out in the rurals, it had brought so much, including the Grand Old Opry, but not limited to the Grand Old Opry, uh-huh. to people all over the country who otherwise would never have the opportunity to hear or know these things. And so he bought it. He's tr- he tried over the years to give it to the um, Smithsonian, to the Country Music the Hall license? of Fame. No, the the, the actual uh, the transmitter? transmitter, but it's too big. Yeah. Nobody would take a Country Music Hall of Fame. No one will Sonsonian. take it. They can't put it in a. No, little I, 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 he couldn't find any takers, and I've announced at many places looking for somebody so, who might come up and you know. So in a sense, that you know that that Sam Phillips, <laughs> ideologically, uh, really laid down some of the foundation for what became, uh, you, you know, the, the 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 point of view of music in the '60s. The point, the idea that music was some sort of bonding force of all people. Yeah, an integrating force that broke down categories, you know, not just racial, but all all categories. And he was, you know, an unabashed liberal all his life, uh, at label which many, uh, which few people claim anymore. Yeah, and, and uh, did he get flack throughout his career from people? Because you know, you think uh, it's very easy to think that. You now, outside of like uh, the the earlier acts, but you know, those guys, the original crew. Uh, you know Perkins, Lewis, Presley, mm-hmm. the the guys, the the the, the hit makers who you know, were were white acts. You know there is some sort of idea that that maybe there was a rednecky kind of uh, feel to it. Well, I don't know that there was a rednecky feel. To it. Well, yeah, I mean it, it it went back. It varied. For instance, Elvis, you know, as Sam saw him, was the most unprejudiced person he had ever met, mm-hmm. and Elvis, as as Sam saw it, fully embraced Sam's ideal. Of breaking, uh, you know, uh, breaking. Those were down. conversations that were had. No, they were not conversations. But he said Elvis was not the kind of person who would articulate that. And the big thing also about Sam mm. was what he got most of all were, were insults from the people in the industry, and he was not inclined to insults con- for hanging around with uh, those people. You the know. black people. Black people. Yeah, yeah. For for. Uh, you know, corrupting the youth. This is from people in the music industry, and and Nashville most of all set itself against him. That for commercial reasons, as much as anything else, they tried to get his records banned from the charts. You know, the records by Elvis, by Jerry Lee Lewis, by Carl Perkins, and Paul Ackerman, who was one of Sam. Sam had very few close friends. Yeah. Paul Ackerman, Dewey Phillips, his brother-in-law Jimmy Connolly, but um, uh, Kemmons Wilson, who started uh, uh, you know started Holiday Inn. Mm-hmm. That those, but but Paul Ackerman wrote a. Uh, an editorial denouncing the Nashville establishment, the country music establishment, and saying, we're not going to be dictated to here. Paul Ackerman was the editor of Billboard. Now, we're not going to be dictated to here. We're going to record what sells, and this is undemocratic, and this is like registering Muslims, and this is like, you know, this is wrong. This is against the tenets of democracy. So they were fighting a, a civil rights struggle because of the, uh, the, the sort of categorization of the music because at that point, what you're telling me, that most of this, you know, quote-unquote black music was being played by these white performers. 
this wasn't the issue. The issue was that the records that Sam Phillips was putting out were cutting into country music sales. But they, but had, a, they had to draw a line because what was the reason? They couldn't say that. They, in, in terms of the Nashville established in country music, the line was money. Okay. They were losing money. And they would say that. And, and, they, yes. they, they didn't slander him. They didn't... They, you they just, slandered him as somebody who was violating the classic tenets of, you know... Country music. Country music, yeah. Right. And so you, you could say it had raised... But the point was Sam du- encountered direct and angry responses, uh, you know, calling him, uh, you know, a lover of people that he shouldn't be loving. Uh, right. A, so let's talk about those, you know, the, the, the first recordings in The Black Artist, because I'm a, I'm a big Howlin' Wolf fan. And I don't oh, think this that, is where the soul of man never dies. How could you not be? If, yeah, you know, yeah. I got a picture of him right there. I love that picture. It's right over the desk there of him on the floor doing oh, his yeah, thing. Yeah, in his in his uh, in his older days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So wait, you know, where does Sam? You, you, how, once he's playing, once he's doing radio, where does he start coming in contact with the? With he doesn't. The, he doesn't. He's just he can't. Why did he come to to Memphis? He came to Memphis because at sixteen. Uh, he insisted that he and that his classmate, he and yeah. his classmates, were driving to uh, Dallas for a revival meeting. He insists that they go by Beale Street on the drive from Florence to Dallas. Mm. I don't think there was anybody else in the car who wanted to go to Beale Street. When they're on Beale Street, he says, you know, that his and this is, you know, a probably less than what it actually was. He says that his his, uh, his friends from high school were amused by mm. the antics or whatever. Because uh, I mean, Beale Street was uh, it was an outdoor area. I've been there, uh, and it was there's a lot of music there, a lot of bars. Well, and it, it, was, time, it, was it was Black a, America's Main Street. Okay, it was you know it was uh, it was it was all black mm-hmm. and every type. I mean, at that time, what you see now is like a uh, a movie set. Yeah, I know what yeah. existed then were doctor, well, or they urban dentists. renewed it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They you know, they what do you call it? Urban um, mm-hmm. destruction or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so he's 16 years old. He goes down to Beale Street, and he says. This was the most inspiring thing I've ever seen. You know, uh, old uh, old black men are sitting on the curb, you know, drinking out of a, a paper bag. And this is something Young. you can relate to with your experiences as an usher and having those moments. I guess so, yeah, yeah. That, I, that you know, that you, your mind is blown by a, a culture and a way of life that is outside of you and by a sound that you know, can't be denied. Well, he said, it, it really wasn't the music. He said, I saw a vision of freedom there because every single person, the young hipsters, the old yep. guys, the people who had saved up for months to come in from the country, every single person was there. Uh, because they wanted to be there, they felt a sense of belonging, and I wish that everybody in America could have that, could see that free, the vision of freedom. But so at 16, he decides I'm going to live in Memphis someday. And the reason he took the job at WREC in Memphis was not because he was at LIC in Nashville, which was a much bigger station, but because at the age of, he moved to Memphis when he was 22, because he had to be in Memphis. Well, but let me ask you something: How much of this, you know, in your encounters with him, which I imagine mm-hmm. were a lot? I mean, how much? Because he seemed like a guy that at some point became very aware of the mythology around him, and he seems like an earnest guy. But did you feel that as you talked to him that there was some myth building of this? No, no. There was. I mean, the the building he saw himself in the late after I first met him in '79. Yeah, he changed quite a bit. I was telling you, he never had done an interview before in his mind and, uh-huh. with an out external source. He was just probably. Def- Defending himself. Well, in he the just past. He, he didn't want to look back. Right. He just thought looking back was he wanted to look ahead, and he was he was uh, he was back in his first love radio, and that and he had lots to do every day, but he uh, um, he was much more soft spoken in when I first met him 
then he he created a public persona as he went out and started doing this. But the persona didn't have to do with a revisionist view of himself. Mm-hmm. Almost everything that he said can be found in his correspondence back in 1551, in, the, in his public utterances, in his championing when Elvis made it, and all of a sudden he is national, Sam, where he came from, is yeah. national news when he's in RCA. Mm-hmm. People ask him about what he does, and he says, well, man, you should have heard Howlin' Wolf. You should have heard Walter Horton. You should have heard, he always put them in the front, you know, and, the, yeah. and that wasn't revisionism. What he saw himself as from the time, after the time, from the time I met him, yeah. he created a persona to teach the teachings, to preach the preachings, not someone, not to glorify himself, but to preach the, to preach the Power sermon of, music. of freedom. Yeah, freedom. freedom. Yeah, and and where did where, how did him and Wolf come together? He this is 1951. He had opened the studio in in 1950. It's about a year and a half after he opened it. Who's he recording right out of the gate? Out of the gate, he had a rough time because he he didn't have uh, outreach. He didn't have any way of reaching the black community. Beale Street is right behind the Hotel Peabody, right. where the radio station was. But there was the ducks. I've seen the ducks. Yeah, the ducks were they were old even then. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I stayed there one night. And yeah, I, yeah. And I did that journey. Yeah, but it, um, but but you know, Beale Street is like another world, even though it's just one street over. And he went on to Beale. I mean, he was on Beale Street. He bought records for the radio station, but basically. It, these are two different worlds. So, so he's playing. He's playing what they. I guess they would call. Uh, what, what was it? He was playing black music on his radio. No, station. no, no, not at all. No, Dewey Phillips, who was another one of his closest friends. Yeah, uh, had the Red Hot and Blue show on WHBQ. Dewey Phillips was playing black music, and that's what tied them together. And 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 he saw Dewey as a brother, and he supported he supported Dewey when Dewey fell on hard times to the end of his life in 1968, and then supported his wife afterwards. But but he. Uh, uh, no, he's in, he's he's on a high class station in REC in the Hotel Peabody. Yeah, he opens a studio on January second, nineteen fifty, on yeah. Union Avenue. How does he get these great black uh, artists of the South for whom he's opened the studio? He makes that statement contemporaneously. This is you know to record uh, some of the great black uh, performers who have no other place to go. Did How he does, see himself as sort of a uh, like a Alan Lomax? No, 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 no not he at all. He wasn't there to he catalog. Saw him, he, no, he saw himself totally as Sam Phillips, yeah. and as somebody who who uh, whose emphasis was on sound, right. whose emphasis was on creating a sound that reflected a reality that was even more real than the reality around you. So it's like Ernest Hemingway creating dialogue. Yeah, and so, also unheard at the time. Unheard, totally unheard. I mean, and he believed that once it was heard by by a mainstream audience. They would be won over, and it, and there would be no turning around. But the first way he started to get, uh, you know, African American performers to come in uh, was um, uh, a guy named Joe Hill Lewis, who was a one man band who played on Beale Street. Just wandered in one day early on. Yeah, and he said, "What are you doing here?" And Sam explained they were building the studio. And Joe Hill Lewis, who seems to have been quite a, char- I never met him, but he's quite a charming guy. He says, "You know." That's just what Memphis needs, a recording studio. And he went out and he brought in people like Walter Horton and Jack Kelly, some of the earliest people who came in and uh-huh. then word spread in the community. And people would come out to see this little white guy who well, they didn't know what the hell he was doing. <laughs> but he's recording people. Yeah. But Wolf, how did he get how did he get to Wolf? He uh, a friend of his, uh, a guy he knew was engineering over at KWEM in West Memphis, uh, which had a very weak signal at that time. Uh, called him up and not enti- somewhat disparagingly, I would say, you know, I, there's somebody on the station here who has a noon show selling farm implements and advertising his appearances. You know, I, he, he plays the kind of music that you like, which to this guy was. <laughs> so Sam tuned in. Yeah. And he said it was a terrible signal and there's all yeah, this yeah. crackle and pop. And yeah. he, but he said through it all, he heard somebody. He heard a voice 
and it, it led him to say, you know, this is it. This is what I'm looking for. This is where the soul of man never dies. Then he calls up But that Wolf. was just the Wolf on acoustic guitar, right? No, he had his band. He, he Willie, did already? Willie, Willie Johnson on uh -huh. guitar and a great, great guitarist. Everybody yeah. should go out and add to their Willie uh, Johnson collection to, uh, immediately. Pre-Hubert. Uh, way pre-Hubert. Yeah. Yeah. Hubert saw Wolf yeah. uh, on a gig in uh, Parkins, Arkansas. I think Parkins, Arkansas. And was standing at the window, and Wolf invited him in. He was about say, fifteen or sixteen years old at the time. Yeah. But uh, so Wolf, so Sam gets in touch with Wolf at the station. Yeah. Invites him to come by the studio. Yeah. And uh, he uh, and doesn't want to put any pressure. It's not a recording session. He just you know it's a, a meet and greet. Uh huh. And uh, but Wolf comes in with this uh, Willie Johnson, Willie Steele sets up, and Sam says, you know, make yourself comfortable. Just and Sam is in the control room doing you know busying himself. So yeah. Yeah. And he said, all of a sudden, it's just he snaps too. It's just like a sound that is so powerful. I mean, it's like he never heard anything. Before I'm getting the sense. excited. And and he comes out into the uh, you know to the floor. Yeah. And he gets there and he says, for one of the few times in my life, or maybe I said for one of the few times in his life, he had no idea what to do. He didn't have a. He had no. And he he fools around with the mic placement, trying to act like he's in charge, but he he just he's just doing it. He's just so overwhelmed by the music, and that was the setup for his recording Wolf. Oh, I can't. What it's, it must have been just electric, man. Yeah, you know, it was incredible. I mean, the thing about Sam never saw Wolf perform. I sent him a uh, uh, a video, yeah. a, a videotape of that Alan Lomax thing, "Devil Got My Woman," which uh -huh. has Wolf performing in this faux juke joint in Newport at the uh, folk festival. That was, but he had no interest in seeing him perform because he said I had the greatest show on my in uh, on earth in my studio, just watching Wolf sitting in a chair and watching the devastation come over him as he sang a song, watching his total absorption. I'll carry, you know, Sam said, I'll carry that with me. He's the a day big I man, die. too. Yeah, he was about 6'3", uh, maybe. At that point, he was probably weighed about 235, So wait, pounds. at Newport, they built a, like a fake juke joint? <laughs> yeah, Alan Lomax made this little, little movie, and you have a, a drunken son house, as Wolf is singing. But, and uh, Wolf knew Son House from way back, and he's, he's waving his arms and talking. Wolf, son House is pre-Wolf. Pre-Wolf, and, and Wolf is saying, you know, sit down, old man, don't embarrass yourself. I mean, the Pat's paraphrase. <laughs> <laughs> what was that weird? I had a copy it, of that video of a, it was a show done in Germany. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, that, that's the American Folk Blues Festival, I'm sure. And, but and, they set up all those environments. And it yeah, was, yeah, they had they had like uh, yeah, like porches and stuff. Yes, it was, exactly, exactly. It was kind of yeah. disturbing, but like J.B. Lenoir was on there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think uh, John Lee Hooker, I saw. It was a pretty amazing thing. Yeah, and no, I remember they. No, Wolf was the most powerful performer I've ever seen. And where did well, you I see say it? that? Solomon Burke and Wolf. I'm not gonna. Where did you see Wolf? I saw Wolf, I just saw him so many times. I saw him in Chicago, I saw him in Boston, I saw him at Club 47. That was probably the first time I saw him at Newport. Uh, he, he just, I mean, I would go, I saw him in Vermont. I would go over, go anywhere to see Wolf, and I would give up. Uh, and I have a fair, I'm not a collector in any way, I know, mm. uh, but I bought a lot of records to listen to them. And let's say I have 7,000 records. I'd give every one of them up to, just for the opportunity to see Wolf one more time. Oh, that's it was just, it just, you know... But Sam... It was a know. different time zone with Wolfman. I mean, you know, like even when you listen to him, like the, the stuff that doesn't necessarily, you know, the, the sort of rolling blues that doesn't necessarily have a, a, a chorus or a turn, like, you know, where, you know, he just mm -hmm. moved through that rhythm. Yeah. And that, that, that rhythm was, was, was completely his own and the vocal power of it all and the way it was mixed and nothing sounds like well, him. his harmonica too. I mean, you know, but, you know, you know, Wolf was just boom. It was just, I mean, the first time I saw him, I think was at Club 47, which was in a cellar. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they had these um, posts to hold up the roof. Mm -hmm. And Wolf got up against the post, and he said, at this point, he's about 300 pounds. 300 pounds oh, really? Of, 300 pounds of heavenly joy, as yeah. he said. And he's, he's 
banging away on the post, you know, emphasize the thing. And I said, oh, my God, it's Samson and Delilah. You know, if I had my way, I'd tear this building down. I thought the roof was going to come down on our heads. Oh, that song, but no, dude. No, I, I just never, ever got tired. But, I, but the point is with Sam. Yeah. Of all the people he recorded, yeah. Wolf was the first he would bring up from Sam's point of view, and I, from my point of view, too. Wolf was the most profound artist that he ever recorded. Now, Wolf, now, now uh, you know, um, Elvis might be the most charismatic. Jerry Lee Lewis was the most purely talented. I mean, he had a superlative for everyone. He loved them all. Johnny Cash, he had enormous. But Wolf was the most profound, along with Charlie Rich, which is really interesting because these are two almost opposites in terms of music. That's style. weird because when I find when I come to Charlie Rich and my 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 knowledge of country music is limited. Well, so you know, was so was Charlie's. He wasn't. He, he'd, he they they put him in country music, and that was the worst thing that ever happened to. Him, although it was the thing that made him a star. But yeah, but I think my memory of him, and even after reading, like I read some Tasha stuff too. You know, you, you two are the guys that uh, that I I think uh, that have uh, showed me some things uh, in terms of your writing. But uh, now we have different styles. Yes, you do <laughs> of, of life and of writing. How would you distinguish a style? Well, I, it, it seems like you you are um, you know a historian as well as a guy who wants well, to Nick understand. Nick is a very good historian. He yeah. just has a more emphatic style. I, I just I didn't mean to. Also, he's or, he's gunning for the darkness. Well, he, he, Nick's theme is there is no there there, and every book says there is no there there. Yeah, and my theme, although I tend to believe that probably Nick is right. Uh, my theme is, uh, I'm looking for the light. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not going to say that Nick is, is by, going, by saying there's no there there, that is a dark place. It is dark. I mean, I think Nick would tell you that he's... Oh, no, uh, I've interviewed not, I, him. I've talked to him. He, I would say, think he would, he would uh, admit to and proclaim the uh, title of nihilist. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he would. And, 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 and Dino. I mean, what? how could you top Dino as far as... You know, oh, don't no you love other. that fucking book? Oh, it's unbelievable. Now, yeah, wait, yeah. you can say fucking on your show? Sure. Because I had lots of things that I tiptoed around there, and you never said, say it, say it, say it. Okay, what the name of the show is, what the fuck? <laughs> well, that's, I know that, but I but you only see it as WTF. I didn't know. You well, know. Let's, let's say, like, so Charlie Rich, by the time I, you know, I don't even have a Charlie Rich record, and now you're making me feel like I should. Because I have a lot of country, and, I, and I, by the time I'm a kid, Charlie Rich has big hits. Yeah, behind closed doors, the most beautiful girl. Hits on which he didn't play piano and which didn't suit his style, but which sold millions of copies and caused... But he was an original son artist? He was original, yeah. He was on Phillips, which is a subsidiary. But, but remember, what did stardom lead to for Charlie Rich? It led to him burning the card that announced uh, John Denver as uh, Entertainer of the Year at the nationally telecast uh, country music. He uh, snapped, huh? Uh, he, he was his only exit from the from the life, his only exit from the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I it people wanted to say what's well, because he was stoned, it's because he was drunk, it's because he was this. It really he he needed to he needed an escape. He was done. Uh, yeah, not done with music. I mean, I. I made a, uh, a um, an album with him in, uh, just before his death called Pictures and Paintings in which he cut some of the songs he'd been carrying around with him all these years, originals, you know, uh, standards like I Can't Get Started, which he played two or three times a night every week at these... Uh, I don't even know this Charlie Rich, and I really feel like I need to know well, this Charlie Well, listen Rich. to... I don't know if you, uh, if you have uh, the... Uh, the two CD set, or, th- or that three. you sent, yeah, I got it. Yeah, and uh, listen to who will the next fool be? Uh, so that or, comes that that comes out in 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 collusion. Is that the word I want with the book that you can get the soundtrack of the book, so to speak? Yeah, no, no, it's definitely. Uh, and you should listen to that as you're reading the book. I don't know that you should do what you want, but no, but I think <laughs> I, I've done that when I. But usually, if I'm reading a book about one person, yeah. I'll inundate myself with the like your book about Sam Cooke. You know, turned me on to you know that whole, all his gospel stuff, and that shit changed my life. 
Yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> and and when when you go to uh, live at the um, that LA, at the shrine, uh-huh. that fifty five concert, you hear Sam Cooke. You've never you would never hear before since he not even live at the Harlem. You know Square. who else loves Sam Cooke? That who I, I just had in here was Herb Alpert. Oh well, he worked with Sam. Yeah, Cook I know. Very and, early. and just like to, to he hear and, the he and, he and Lou Adler worked together at yeah. Kane, and and uh, they have the co-write, or I should say, Sam has the co-write on Wonderful World. Right. And uh, really, it was a song they'd written as this yeah. little ditzy high school thing. Yeah. And Sam saw it as something else. I love those beautiful moments where, like, uh, like magic is, you know, the alchemy happens, and I think that's really what you're talking about with Sam, mm-hmm. with Phillips in this book, is that 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 alchemy that he somehow managed. You know, by dealing with these artists is really the beginning of, of of rock and roll, and it's not that long ago. No, no, and I mean, you think about how Elvis started, and you think about this. Section. Did he do Rocket eighty eight too? Yeah, did he did Rocket eighty eight before Wolf, right? And and why do you, you talk about taking what you're given? I mean, he's got a song by Jimmy DeBerry where a telephone goes off in the middle, and he says, "You think I was going to, you know, change that for some <laughs> for some track without that that great sounding telephone?" No, yeah, you know, he says yeah, that, yeah. you know, and so yeah. uh, and you know, he's he says, you know, he, we, we were sitting there and tri- dump trucks were walking by down in Florence, and he says, "Look at that." That's where it's happening. Mm-hmm. Ain't that where it's happening? You know, and he just, uh, so he embraced with Rocket 88, what happens, Ike Turner shows up with his group, the Kings of Rhythm, who renamed Jackie Brenton and his Delta Cats by Sam, much to, uh, J- to Ike Turner's uh, high dudgeon. Yeah. Uh, because uh, Sam um, gave Jackie Brenton the vocal. He liked Jackie Brenton's vocals better right. than Ike, which did not. Sit endear- well with Ike. Right. Ike did all right, kind of. Oh, he did all right, and he and Sam ended up good friends. I mean, they, that was one of the artists that Sam was closest to in his last years. But the point was, they show up at the studio, which they drive by three times because it's a storefront and it looks like a barbershop. Yeah. Me. And uh, they, they on their way uh, on their way up from um, uh, from Clarksdale, they get stopped several times for the crime of driving while black. You know, an, really, an old story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they also have a flat tire, and when they take the tire out of the trunk, because tires were still in trunks in those days, mm-hmm. uh, they drop the amplifier, the guitar amp. And when they get to the studio, they find that the tube is uh, shattered and uh, that there's a buzz in the thing, and they just, they're just crestfallen because there isn't time to get another amp. There isn't, and they just figure they've blown their big opportunity, and Sam listens to it, and he says, no. He says, that's original. Yeah. Now, that's, that's different. That's going to give you, a, <laughs> an, a, you know, an original sound on the record, and he gets some paper from uh, Miss, uh, Ms. Taylor's next, the restaurant next uh-huh. door, stuffs it uh, you know, in the amp, and you can hear that buzz all the way through. And that, to Sam, it wasn't that he would have planned it that way, but he was fully prepared to take advantage in, you know, it's like Jack Kerouac, spontaneous Bob prosody. Well, sure, it's organic and it's uh, it's authentic by virtue of the fact that it, you can see it as a problem or you can see it as a gift. Yeah. And and that, like, you know, like he was intuitive enough to know, like, it doesn't sound bad. Yeah. And no, it, he thought it sounded power. great. Of course. He thought it sounded great. It sounded different. He, he blew up. The last session he produced was uh, two songs on John Prine on an album that uh, Pink Cadillac that uh, his sons Knox and Jerry were producing. Mm-hmm. And on one of them was Saigon, and Sam blew up the uh, guitarist amp in the uh, echo chamber because he wanted to create the sound of uh, frying, flying fragments of metal flying through the air. Did he get it? He got it. And then, and John Prine was so proud of that album that he, for the first and only time in his life, first and last time, he took the album out once it had been mastered out to uh, Electra Asylum. Uh, you know, in California, yeah. and and presented to them in a listening session, and they just looked at him with a worried look, and they said, "Well, John, that's okay, but you're going to have to go back and re-record this whole thing." You know, there's a buzz going through that thing, so it was back to this is like uh, 29 years later after Rocket '88, Sam created the you know the yeah. distortion, the uh, and um, 
John, John Prine was so. Uh, but see, like to me, that's the whole thing's fascinating. So, like you know, Rocket Rocket eighty eight for some people is the first rock and roll song. Yeah. I mean, it, categorically, that the, some historians believe that. Do you believe that? No, I don't think there's a first of any. Nothing come comes, on, nothing, Peter. Come on. No, no, no. Give no, me three nothing, songs. Not, nothing comes from nothing. Okay, Frank Stokes' Downtown Blues, 1927. The driving rhythm of that might as well be the first rock and roll song. Okay. Big Maceo's, uh, some of Big Maceo's uh, kind of boogie-woogie numbers just... Uh, okay, so what differentiates it? Then why does somebody decide rock and roll is here? Is that just a branding thing? Yeah. Okay. I mean, the point is, it was Paul Ackerman, probably, who was the first one, to, and who was Sam's great champion and Sam's great friend, a guy with a PhD in English literature, uh-huh. maybe just an master's. Uh-huh. The specialty was on the 17th, George Herbert, and the, I think the 17th century uh, um, poets, uh-huh. English poets. No, it couldn't be from a greater dis, a greater difference of background for yeah. than Sam. But, uh, and a very scholarly, erudite, erudite guy who edited Billboard. And he, I think he saluted Rocket 88 as the first rock and roll song after rock and roll had to hit. Oh, so it's a retro So fit. it had to be retro because there was no rock and roll at the time. But Sam, but Sam had this vision of rock and roll. He didn't know how it was going to turn out exactly. He didn't know what, uh, but he knew it was going to be the music that rock and roll turned into, a music that could reach a mass audience. Okay, and he look- believed, he believed that Rocket 88 which sold 100,000 copies almost entirely in the black market. It was a huge sale. Yeah. He believed it was going to cross over and was quoted in the papers saying that. He told me, and probably other people too, that Howlin' Wolf could have been as big as Elvis Presley with white kids as well as with black. Now, I don't ask me how that could have been. I don't know how it could have been. I don't share that. I didn't, as much as I share Sam's admiration and veneration yeah. for Wolf. But that's that's what he believed. When he You listen to some of the driving rhythm numbers that he does on Wolf, he saw that as as reaching an audience, the, the, the audience that rock well, and roll it, Well, reach. it's weird because it actually had to go to England and then come back before it, it, it actually became... Well, the, the blues, but he wasn't thinking of it as a blues. No, I get it. That was I the basis, it. but but the point was he saw it as becoming the mainstream, uh, Music. getting the mainstream, doing what Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis, and, but in the aftermath, the part of his vision was yeah. when he realized he could never break that uh, that race barrier... Uh, with his artist, with Little Junior Parker, who could be seen as the birth of rockabilly. Right. When you listen to Love My Baby, why didn't this thing make it? It was because Little Junior Parker was black. Uh-huh. Uh, but it has every element. And he realized at this point, as he was going bankrupt, he realized the only way I can reach that mass audience, that white audience, is if I can put a white face, find a white man with a Negro sound, but much more important, the Negro feel. And that that was when the audience would, once they responded to the music, then then the, the doors would open wide. And that essentially is the story of rock and roll. Once there was the acceptance of a few of these white artists, Elvis first, uh, primarily, then all these great uh, black artists like Ray Charles, Fats Domino, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, they came through those doors, you know, at 100 miles an hour, and they became not uh, race stars, not R and B stars. They became pop stars, and they, you know, who was in, who went into the but, Rock and Roll Hall but, of Fame for the first? Uh, right, but most of those guys, you know, still had a, a little bit of a chip on their shoulder about their treatment and and the well, and, as they should. I mean, right. we live in America. Yeah, I know. I and get how, what you're and saying. And how do you spell America? <laughs> how do you spell it well i'm not going into the spelling i leave it to the listener to me. <laughs> so like let's talk a, a little bit about the you know in the time you know we have here is, is, is there's so much to talk about and and obviously i i guess i'm you know i i'm looking for that that poetic magic that happened in and you know you're so thorough and i don't think you miss it but I, you know i want to know 
you know, that moment where, like, in my mind, you know, at Sun Records, you know, all these guys were, they knew each other. That, you know, Wolf, you know, had, you know, was hanging out with Elvis and you know, there was... Well, not so much, but Wolf and Little Junior Parker especially were inspirations to Elvis, among many others. But they never crossed paths. They never, you know, there was never a sort of a, a, a like, sort of thank you or, or uh, you know, they, show me a lick. Well, uh, it, well, Elvis openly endorsed uh, artists like Bobby Bland like Little Junior Parker, appeared in the paper, his picture appeared in the paper, then went down to the DIA uh, Goodwill Review, just like I went to the Summer Shower of Stars, you know, mm -hmm. the, the only white in, in, in an all-black audience, came out on stage, uh, you know, put his arm around B.B. King and spoke in the, in the white newspapers, in the mainstream newspapers, of how great this music was and how great these people were. So, sure, there was a crossover, but not, not in the sense that they collaborated in the studio. Or Why didn't they? They weren't there at the same time. It was years later? It wasn't years later. It was a year later, let's say. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was... It was uh, and Sam was... A, you've got to remember, it was a one-man operation who... Uh, why did Johnny Cash leave Sun? He left it as much as anything because he was jealous of the attention that Sam was uh, giving to Jerry Lee Lewis, who, ha who, was, who was the hot hand at that moment. If you're one person operating a business in which you're selling millions of records... You can't. You. It, it's pretty easy to spread yourself too thin, and Sam was not going to do that. And how? What was the? What was the year span of when all this sort of happened? I mean, how many years? Like, from what to what was the? Well, Sam. The, Sam opened up in in January '50. By 1960, he had pretty much extricated himself from the business. He no longer saw the future in in many different ways. But you wanted a definitive statement about what? I'm missing your. No, just I, that I, you I, know I, that, that that moment where you, you know you can track. If we're not going to go, there's no there there. I mean, there was a moment, uh, and I imagine it was w the first Elvis hit that that all of it came together, and and Sam was able to realize his vision. No, I think he realized his vision with Wolf in 19. I think that Wolf was the living reification, the living uh, visualization of everything that he ever wanted in music. And had he been able to cross Wolf over in the way that he, this was 51. So it was out of his hands that he thought that Wolf was the, the guy and that, you know, what the culture did with it was out of his hands. But in terms right. of the sound, in terms he of his own personal thing. But, but if you want to say, what, where did Sam turn? See, you, you said, is, is it, a, I think, a marketing term or something? What's rock and roll? Listen to That's All Right. What is it that makes that rock and roll? It isn't. It's, it, you could call it folk music. It's, sure. it's just a That's pure true. kind of music, right. and putting the name rock and roll on it was the way to sell that music. And uh, But if you're looking for what turned Sam's label around, turned Sam, it was the success of Blue Suede Shoes, which he was able to not only uh, record... Elvis's or Perkins? Perkins. Mm -hmm. No, Elvis just covered it and, and uh, actually asked permission to cover it. But made it a uh, hit again, right? Not really, no. It oh. was on an EP. I mean, it was, it will, I mean, the point is everything Elvis put out yeah, sold. Uh, was a hit. <laughs> in, in, but no, Carl Perkins, um, Sam put out Carl Perkins' Blue Suede Shoes at about the, almost exactly the same time that, uh, that RCA put out Elvis's first single on RCA Heartbreak Hotel, which Sam called a morbid mess. Yeah, I don't, I don't agree, but I and the public. What did, was his What was his reasoning? Uh, it was uh, it was nihilistic, both in sound and in, and in, uh, and and in message. Uh, so I don't know, you know. I, but if if Nick had spoken to him about it, he might have had a different view. <laughs> I didn't mean to to drag Nick into this. We've got light and darkness here. The rock critic. But but, but the point the point was that the two of them. Uh, Blue Suede Shoes started going up the charts and it made it to the top of the charts of the R&B country and pop, which had never happened before. And Heartbreak Hotel did the same thing within weeks. RCA had, given, had lost faith in Elvis because of the explosive success of Carl Perkins, but with the success of Carl Perkins... But Elvis was at Sun first. I mean, what was it? But, but Elvis was a regional star on Sun. I know, but what was the, did the relationship between Sam... I mean, how many songs did Sam do with Elvis before he lost Elvis? 
uh, he put out five singles, and he, there were probably another. And was that acrimonious? More. No, no, not at all. No, okay. no. He, 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 when I say he was going broke, he was on the verge of bankruptcy when he sold Elvis's contract. He had been on the verge of bankruptcy ever since he started the label. You know, the worst thing that can happen, if not to a small business, certainly to a small label at that time, is is uh, a hit. And Elvis wanted to go, and he needed the money, so it worked out. It wasn't really to do with Elvis. It was more to do with what he needed. Elvis wanted to go because of Colonel Parker. But it was, but, but that was neither here nor there. The real thing was Sam not only would not have survived in business, he would have lost the, well, he just would have lost the business altogether. Not the business, but his dream. Yeah. And so with the $35,000 that he got for Elvis's contract and with the $5,000 uh, that he got, uh, or that Elvis got as, yeah. as a payout for his uh, for the royalties due, which Sam kept scrupulous track of, but he didn't have the money to pay, and uh, that was what. And with that thirty five thousand dollars that he got, he was able to reconstitute the co- the company. He was able to promote and put everything he had behind Blue Suede Shoes. He and RCA called shortly after when Blue Suede Shoes hit the charts. Uh, Steve Scholz at RCA called and said, "If we signed the wrong guy," <laughs> in terms of you know thinking of Elvis. So no, he. he I mean, people would say to him. Did you ever regret or some people will say that's the worst business decision in history, which doesn't even rival Lisa Marie selling Graceland for a hundred million dollars. But um, but the point is that uh, no, Sam, it was a great business decision, and Sam never had any regrets at all because it led to everything else he did. Right. So with that, from there, from Blue Suede Shoes, you get to uh, you get to uh, the Jerry Lee Lewis hits, right? Yeah. I mean, you had well, Johnny, Johnny Johnny Cash, Cash I walked the line. Yeah, you had Johnny Cash, and you had all these. Other artists coming in from at, from the beginning, from throughout the year of '56, all coming in because they had been so inspired, actually, by Elvis's music. It, it had, I mean, they, some many of them saw it was performed the originality. But I like this what you said about it that it could be folk music because, like, the thing that keeps pounding through my brain in terms of what we're talking about, your experience, uh, you know, at the beginning with the records you had, and you know, and talking about Sam Phillips and the belief that that you know there, there's 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 some sort of alchemy, there's some sort of wild card that could happen right. that that is raw and real. That you know, because like against Delta '88, you've got Rock Around the Clock, which is an overproduced, almost a big band album. Yeah, uh, way it was really Western swing, right? And, and and Sam didn't disregard it, but he felt like no, there's, but, no, but, there's nothing fresh, there's nothing new in it. But raw, raw. I mean, you know, you get yeah. you got people like like Elvis, and you got people like Howlin' Wolf, and you got people like Jerry Lee Lewis who couldn't help but be you know be, you know painfully alive. And in the present with their music. Hey, look, they're the Dionysian spirit. That's right. But it and and that was what Sam was. Look, when when Kyle Perkins would record something, yeah, and uh, you know, and he was uh, a little tight. Well, Sam would say, "This is you know, that's great. That's it. You get the feel." And and uh, Kyle Perkins would say, "I mean, I, I'll just shorten this." But Kyle would say, "But Mr. Phillips, there's a mistake there. I want to. I could fix it. Let's do another." And Sam says, "No, you've got the feel." And and. Uh, and Kyle would say, but, but I made a bad mistake there. Yeah. And uh, or I made a mistake there. And, and Sam would say, that's all right, Kyle. That's where we are here at Sun. We're just one big inspired mistake. <laughs> but, but it's sort of funny because like, even looking at someone like Johnny Cash, uh, you know, in, in, in comparison to whatever, you know, whatever Johnny's problem was with, with Jerry Lee Lewis in terms of his success, the, di- the, the, the difference between them, their, their, their songs and their style is that Johnny was also painfully raw. It yeah. just it was at a different tone. And totally original. I mean, yeah. Sam saw him in some ways as analogous to Howlin' Wolf. Johnny Cash is nobody he admired more than Johnny Cash, both for his singing, which was, uh, 
you know, unrepeated. I mean, nobody uh, inimitable, and for his for his writing. But the other thing about Johnny Cash is he comes in with two uh, musicians who can barely play, particularly Luther Perkins, the guitarist. And every take they took because they didn't do uh, splicing. Every take they took would be interrupted because Luther Perkins couldn't uh, couldn't make the notes. He could play one note at a time, and mm-hmm. he was just and he was painfully shy. And he and at one point, uh, John says Johnny Cash says. Uh, let's do it with another guitarist. And Sam says, no, this is your sound. This is what makes it different. This is what gives it distinction. And it was not the fact that Luther Perkins was incompetent. I mean, he was trying so hard, and he got there eventually, but the fact that this gave them an original sound. Because he's putting all he's got into the simple notes that he knows. That's exactly, which is the whole point of anything creative. I mean, that's what I try to do. However simple-minded I may be, I try to put everything I've got into every word I write. Well, that's the beauty of rock music, and I guess, uh, you know, there's something that comes directly, you know, from the blues, and even, you know, the the music that comes from Africa previous to the blues, Mm -hmm. is that, you know, it it is a, a simplicity just completely Fueled by by passion and and focus and and feeling. Yeah, no, that, and yet for Sam, because there were no genres, he could go uh, out and see uh, uh, see Charlie Rich, the one of the few artists that he he would go out. He could, he might go out two or three times a night to see him play on Madison Avenue, and Charlie's playing jazz, which was Charlie's first love, and to Sam. It was the passion with which he played, even though it was not the genre which he would have chosen. And mm-hmm. so, so I mean, I, I feel like you can find it. You can find it anywhere. You know, you can find it. And different people have different tastes. I mean, as uh, as Solomon said, different strokes for different folks. But those soul guys, the soul singers, like you know, like the the Sam Cooke thing, is that, you know, what what we're talking about, what we're we're talking about about feeling really, and about uh, uh, a unique voice mm-hmm. that you, you know, because if you listen to the the gospel stuff. I mean, there's the, he had a rawness as well, but he had an incredible sort of unique sense of melody and of control. Of yeah. it. And, but you'll hear it one of the few times you'll hear on record some place where he's just going all out and and throwing away that control, and that was the underpinning for a great many of the very controlled pop recordings he made. Right, because it, ultimately he became a fairly controlled singer, you know, and a controlled pop artist, yeah, yeah. and not like the, he. The, the, it was the opposite of menace, you know, where you get most of the, you know, the Sun guys were menacing, well, in yeah. a way, in a good way. Yeah. I, you know. Well, I mean, you listen to Sonny Burgess. I mean, you listen to the end of uh, of Redheaded Woman, which is like a train wreck. And again, Sonny, who's who's still performing today, I think he's eighty two or eighty three, and he's one of the one of the nicest guys in the world, and he's still rocking. But Sonny just begged Sam to let them redo it. They, they, you know, it featured perhaps the only rockabilly trumpet in history. Oh, Sonny's yeah. Group. But uh, he begged <laughs> Sam to let them re-record it, and Sam said, no, that, that had the feel. That you, there's no reason to re-record it. You know, it doesn't matter what the mistakes were. It doesn't matter whether the telephone's ringing. That had the feel. But so you, you know, what I'm starting to see, you know, even from uh, the, did you ever listen to those, uh, those sped up Robert Johnson records? The ones where they, they there's a claim that there's a claim. I've never I've talked to people and I've never known. Did you anybody. listen to them? Well, I don't know what they're talking about exactly. I mean, it, well, that they were recorded at slightly the wrong speed. Well, that the reissues were put out at 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 a, at a slightly higher speed, which raised Ro, right, Ro, Ro, right. Johnson's voice and created yeah. an intensity. I, I've never seen anything to substantiate that, but but I don't know. It's weird to listen to them though. To like listen I, to them slow down. You yeah, mean. yeah. Well, it was a variable. So the point was, phonographs were variable speed, and there was no. Uh, true pitch as far as speed went in, right. in those days. It, it, yeah. it was, I mean, I know it's been sort of discredited, but it is sort of fascinating to listen to it. Well, well, it is, and and it it 
Uh, and in some ways, you know, it could give you a sense of maybe what listening to Robert Johnson on different days could be. <laughs> <laughs> but the sort of the thing that you're chasing, and I think the thing that is is not the defining uh, rock and roll is rock and roll, but but the, this sort of this this kernel of uh, we'll, we'll call it light through this 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 music that inspired mm-hmm. you early on that runs through all of it. It does. It absolutely does. And it took me, that's why I say it took me to Waylon Jennings. And the reason I say Waylon Jennings is because I, after Feel Like Going Home came out in 71, I wrote at the end of it. And unless you have a first edition, you won't see it phrased in this quite quite this way. Yeah. But I wrote that. I, I was going I I to say my farewell, my you know, to my brief. And I was going to go back just to appreciating the music. I was going to discard the notebook in my hand, which is in my, it's not in my hand right now, it's in my pocket. Yeah. And, and I, went back and for two years I didn't write about music uh, because I, I went and wrote another novel because yeah. I felt like I was doing this out of love and I wanted to retain the purity of it. Right. I didn't realize then what you mentioned before. I was also in love with the show business aspect of it and I didn't want to admit that. You know, Really? So this is the first time you admitted that? No, I admitted it back in 1973. <laughs> <laughs> not, not since. But I'm willing to affirm it on the air. But no, no I mean, as, but a, a guy named Jim Miller, who uh, edited the Rolling Stone Illustrated History of Rock and Roll, became the music editor of the real paper. And he said, why don't you write about Waylon Jennings? And I hadn't listened to much. And uh, that was, this was when Honky Tonk Heroes came out. And I listened to that and about 10 other albums. Yeah. And I went to see him for a week mm-hmm. uh, at the Performance Center, I think, or, uh, in Cambridge. And it was like I realized... This is the blues. It's a completely different format. It's a completely different approach. It's different changes. But the rawness of it, just the direct impact of it, and the fact that it's just coming from his gut, what Sam would always refer to gut bucket blues. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, so it wasn't, I wasn't trying to change it into blues, but it had the same appeal. And that's what really, I knew country music. I mean, I'd listened to some country music. I'd listened to Hank Williams. I'd listened to Jimmy Rogers. But that just totally blew me away. No kidding. Waylon. Yeah. Waylon. You it's know. beautiful. Well, the thing is that that sort of blew my mind and sort of got me going. Like I like to play blues. Like I play blues, but I don't listen to it as much as I like to play it. I'm mm-hmm. a big Peter Green fan, right? And I can't shut up about Peter Green. <laughs> I love Peter Green. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but the uh, but what got me? Like I spent a couple of years just trying to sort of decode. Uh, Captain Beefheart, right. and it's all fucking Wolf, man. It is. It's it all is. Wolf. Like the first two, it's all Wolf. No, it's totally Wolf. And I mean, I and I appreciated that, but I think there's an abstraction there. Of course, that I didn't but, quite get. But you know who wrote about Peter Green was Elvis Costello in his new book. I know. I just talked to Elvis Costello. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that Peter Green inspired him to play guitar, and yeah, you yeah, see him yeah. schlepping around. Yeah, you know, kind of this heavy spirit, man. So when you listen to, do you listen to current music? Is that part of your bag? Yeah, I listen to a pretty wide variety of music. I mean, I, I I'm influenced by Jake and Nina, my daughter, and uh, sure, you know. So I listen to I listen to uh, J D. Mc um, from McPherson. Uh, yeah, McPherson. I think he's great. Yeah, I listen to. Well, that makes uh, sense for you. I listen to Dennis Brennan, who's a great singer songwriter from uh, Boston. I listen to. Uh, uh, Colin Linden, who has a great new album out called Rich in Love. Uh-huh. There's another guy named Kevin Gordon, who's out of uh, uh, out of Nashville, who is just the most astonishing storyteller. He does kind of a drone blues that isn't the blues. Uh, he he was at the Iowa Writers Workshop and gave it all up to become... And he really he was yeah. at the high yeah, level there. High 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 his stuff work. is just amazing. His new album is incredible. I, I'm totally... You know, they, there's the saying, first we must kill all the lawyers. Well, it should be amended to first we must kill all the intellectual property lawyers. <laughs> because there's no such thing as... It has to evolve. Yeah, there's no such thing as originality. I mean, it's good that you people endorse Bob Dylan's music, 
and they say, well, he's like a magpie. But basically, there isn't a single thing that anybody has ever appreciated or listened to that doesn't come from something else. Well, the thing that like that got me about you know sort of understanding Dylan at different points, but certainly early Dylan, you know, after reading his book and then seeing some and then seeing uh, Ramblin' Jack's daughter's doc on Ramblin' oh, Jack, wasn't that great? It's great, but yeah. there, you know, you know, just the, there had to be a couple of years where Ramblin' Jack was like, oh, fucking Dylan took my shtick you know like there was like you know he was sort of uh dylan was sort of a, a sponge and a cipher and you know and a self-inventor over you know these different eras but at the beginning the charm and the wit was definitely ramblin jack well yeah and i i wonder if ramblin jack i mean solomon always said bile will consume you and i don't see uh ramblin jack as a bilious kind of person but but maybe 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 you're right it's just you know, solomon burke said bile will consume you yeah he this was his uh his, his advice to both himself and me <laughs> don't let bile consume that's you. true right well to think of uh certain pop stars who have books out now who have spent the last 40 years worrying about the injustice that was done to them when they were 21 yeah yeah, I know. I talked to John Fogarty. I wasn't mentioning any names, you know. But I figured... <laughs> <laughs> he seems to have gotten back at least half of the publishing rights. He seems okay. He married a he... nice woman and kind of got him in, in line, and, and he seems pretty emotional about it. It's sad about the relationship with his family and his band, but but he seems like he, he got back what was rightfully his. I'm just saying we could do a whole show on all the ways in which I felt, I feel I was done wrong. They were all minuscule. You should start but... writing the blues, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> but that that isn't what that isn't what the blues is about. In a way. No, the I blues, know. in a sense, is, is transcending. Up, it's uplifting. It, it's no, transcending. you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. That the characterize it as as it's, sad. It's not, music. Not, not nihilistic. It's an anecdote. <laughs> it's right. an you know, it's a, an antidote to sadness and but, to struggle. But you know, it was like for me, the blues. It was you know, there were poets like William Carlos Williams. I mean, so much depends sure, on the real power. And it's just it, it, to me, it's just it's what it is. And, and no, I get it, I, but I think that what what Nick was. I, it, I don't. I'm not arguing with that. No, no, know. no, no. But I, I think that ultimately, you, you know, Nick is looking for that the the heart of that Dionysian thing, and that you know his <laughs> assumption is that you know it comes from malcontent, it comes from darkness, and it right, is a right. it, it is a fight against darkness, but it is not the it is not moving towards the light. No, no, it it, oh, yeah. it, it isn't. But I and and I I don't have any quarrel. I mean, he's he, no, he no, has no, a great yeah. love for the music. But I mean, you could read Hellfire by by Nick, which, yeah, yeah. which is a great book. But read in in uh, the Sam my Sam Phillips book, yeah. you read about Jerry Lee. It's a completely different person. Sure. I'm not claiming that I'm right, but I'm just saying it's a different perspective. It's a different angle of perspective. And what what is your take on Jerry Lee in the light? He's a genius. He's a, he's brilliant. He's insightful. He is. Uh, He's aware of everything around him except what would benefit Jerry Lee. <laughs> Man's got to have his hobbies. <laughs> so he's, a, he's, a, he's his own worst enemy. He is, but, he, but in terms of the music, there has been no greater. And, and in terms of, you talk to Jerry Lee about life in general. Yeah. If he doesn't you know, pull a gun on you or throw you out of the house. I mean, he's always been very nice to me since yeah. I met him in 1970. I, I'm not claiming any great intimacy, but we've... But the point is that he he has his moods. Yeah. But you talk to him about uh, I don't maybe don't talk to him about world events, but the world around him. Yeah. And he's very very insightful. He's yeah. very aware. He's very uh, in a way that I think nobody has ever given him credit for. And his music doesn't stem from just a purely wild Dionysian Dionysian yeah. uh, impulse. It stems from perception. It stems from you know. Uh, uh, inspiration and it stems from just this. It's what I tried to you know write about Elvis. I mean, everybody just saw him as a pawn, you know, yeah. uh, uh, you know, a pawn in the in the winds, 
And I wrote about him as a conscious creative artist because yeah. he had a drive. He knew what he, he may not have been able to define what he was going for, but he knew what he wanted. Yeah. And now, and well, thanks for doing the work you do. The, this book, the Sam Phillips, a man who invented rock and roll. I know we could talk a long time and, and I, and I feel a little out of my, uh, out of my league in talking about this stuff, but I think we did all right. You know, I would, I would, I tell you what, we should go back and I, we should get, a, we should go back and we should uh, overdub all the motherfuckers I left out. <laughs> I mean, I was being polite. Next I didn't time, know, Peter. I, you know, if you told me welcome to well, what the fuck, I, I would have been. Well, right I'm sorry, with you, I, you know? I didn't, I didn't make it clear that you could uh, let out all the motherfuckers you needed to. Yeah, no, I and I had a lot bottled up. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. <laughs> Thank you. I love, I love deep music nerds. I want to thank the people who work on the music for this show. Uh, check them all out. DJ Copley at WebPuppy45 on Twitter. Paul Buck on Facebook at Paul Buck Music. And John Montagna, who did our theme music. He's at johnmon.com. J-O-N-M-O-N.com. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF pod needs. Get some JustCoffee.coop. Get the WTF one. They give me a little. Somebody was... Uh, defying me to play some clean guitar. Huh.